We're in a series on the book of Colossians at Gateway. We're two messages in, and this morning we turn our attention to verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1, so a very short passage. And I encourage you to follow along, so turn, click, swipe, tap, or do what you need to do to get there, get in your digital bulletin. Hopefully you found that there's a, a link. And let's read. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and which I, Paul, have become a servant. It's a strange time that we're in. I don't know how old you are, whoever you are who's listening. I was 22 when 9-11 happened, and I thought it would be the defining historical moment of my life. And nearly 20 years later, 9-11 seems faint and distant, and the spread of SARS-CoV-2 and its disease COVID-19 seem like they might end up being far more significant. Certainly it will be what's monumental for my children. I challenged my eight-year-old Elijah the other day to, to try to carefully take in everything he was seeing and, and experiencing because he's at that age where maybe, just maybe, if he, if he focuses, he'll remember a lot of what's going on, but it, it might just be a faded blur of a memory as he gets older. Sarah, my wife, she's smarter than I am, uh, encouraged the kids to keep a journal of the events. Life is unpredictable, and, and we perhaps forget that. In the first message of this series, I mentioned in passing that the city of Colossae was almost entirely destroyed by a massive earthquake in or around A.D. 60. Most likely, it was within a handful of years at most of receiving this letter. I imagine that that earthquake rendered many of the mundane concerns of life in Colossae irrelevant. Similar, I think, to your concerns and mine right now. Many things that seemed so important a few weeks ago are much less so now. Some of you canceled vacations. Some of you are thinking more about your families, whether they're being safe or responsible amidst this pandemic. But Paul's letter to the Colossians finds them in the midst of a different sort of crisis than an earthquake or a plague. They're being infected by a false teaching that threatens to shipwreck their faith. And what's worse, it seems like they might not even realize it. Not unlike some naysayers who want to claim that everything is fine, there's no pandemic, there's nothing to worry about. These Colossians were accepting seductive new ideas that undermined the pure gospel that they had been taught. And so in this passage before us, we have Paul, the apostle, before he begins to attack these false philosophies head on, he takes some time to remind the Colossians and us of our Christian call. Specifically, this, mass, this passage reminds us of what we were and what we will be and exhorts us what we must 
be now. What we were, what we will be, and what we must be now. That's my outline. Paul is writing this letter to Christians living in the city, the ancient city of Colossae. And I don't know if that's you because I don't know who all is watching or listening. If you're a Christian, the first verse of this passage describes what you were. If you're not a Christian, then this verse describes what you are, and it's sobering. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Now there's three key words or phrases here that describe a person's status before being a Christian. Let's take them one at a time, alienated. That means separated from God. Paul has just spoken about how Jesus had made peace between God and humans by his death on the cross. So he's reminding you that before you came to faith in Christ, you were separated from God. You were alienated. Now, alienation is a strong word. We never use it about bad things. Have you noticed that? We never, we never talk about alienation from prison. We never talk about alienation from violence or alienation from tropical storms. We use it about good things. We're alienated from our children. We're alienated from society. We're alienated from the self. And so alienation is typically something bad because alienation is from something significantly good. We've all experienced alienation of one form or another. Perhaps it was from an in-group when we were in junior high, or perhaps it was from coworkers at a job, or, or perhaps you've experienced alienation from family. But no matter how painful and significant that alienation is, um, it is something that was or is nothing in, in comparison to the alienation from the good and loving God who created you and created you for an intimate, loving relationship with Him. I think many of us feel this desire to be loved, more than that, to be known to be recognized, to be appreciated, to be supported, to be at peace. God desired all of that with you, with each of us. But we come into the world in a state of alienation from God because of our own rebellion against God. And that's where the second key phrase appears, enemies in mind. See, we simply were not alienated because God is capricious. We're not alienated because we came into this world with just a generic need to earn a right to be in His presence. Instead, our alienation comes from our own selves. It's on our end. It's our rebellion. We have made ourselves enemies. And it stems from our thinking, Paul says, our, our minds. Many religions get hung up on doing righteous deeds or good works. In Islam, there is thawa. In Buddhism, it is punya. And even many faiths with their origins in Christianity are very focused on moral living in order to please God. 
But this is decidedly not the Christian message. Because the Christian message is that our minds, our hearts, which rule all of our deeds, are bent on evil. They have set themselves up as enemies of God. How do we become enemies? By rejecting God's rules and God's heart and setting up our own in their place. And the way that works itself out is evil deeds. That's the third phrase here. Our status as enemies works itself out in evil deeds. Our evil deeds are products of our warped minds. This is why deeds that might seem altruistic or benevolent or gracious to the world around you may not earn you any merit before God because they're only good externally. But God who sees your mind and sees your heart, who knows all the motivations for those acts, and who knows that some of those motivations are never quite as pure as we might wish they were, deems them evil. So the problem isn't fundamentally the evil deeds, as if you could merely clean those up and then earn merit with God. No, the problem is a mind set on rebellion that cannot allow you to do anything truly righteous. Everything is tainted. Everything is impure. And so we were, or if you're not a Christian, are alienated. It's important for those of us who are Christians to remember what we were so that we do not lose sight of how much God has done for us. Likewise, it's important for those of you who do not follow Christ to understand what you are if you have any hope of finding a remedy. And that brings us to the second point, what we are to be. Continuing the passage, Paul writes, He has now, so you who were, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now these are words of hope and, and a point that I alluded to earlier. We Christians who were alienated have been reconciled. And if we have been reconciled, then there is hope for those of you who remain alienated. How? By Christ's physical body through death. What the, what the author, the Apostle Paul, means is that in Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus paid the debt we owe for our rebellion, our status as enemies. Or to put it another way, Jesus merited for us what we could never merit for ourselves. Our treachery ought to end in death. There'd be no payment large enough to repay the infinite offense we've made against an infinite God. But Jesus, who was God, died in the place of rebels. His death for our death. That's the remedy for your alienation, for your enmity for your evil deeds. It's not changing your deeds, 
but accepting the deed of Christ done on your behalf. It is turning your back on the way of treason and embracing Jesus' rule as your new king. Why did Jesus do this? Paul says that it is in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's a purpose statement. Jesus' purpose was to present us before him in a certain way. You see, each of us will appear before Jesus. He has been appointed judge of this world, and he will, on the last day, execute justice with exacting fairness. And depending on where you stand with Jesus, that is either good news or bad news, because in a state of rebellion, we appear before Jesus defiled, blameworthy, and full of reproach. Should we appear before him in that way, what ought we to think his just and fair judgment will be? But Jesus died for sinners so that those who surrender to him, like these Colossians, might appear before him in judgment on much different ground. They will appear holy and blameless and above reproach, holy and blameless, not because they had lived perfectly moral lives, but because Jesus' life of righteousness is credited to their account. Instead, they'll be found above reproach, meaning that no charge can stand against them. And so what we will be if we are in Christ is accepted. We will pass through judgment, be declared not guilty, and be accepted into the loving fellowship with God that we are created for. There's a caveat to all that we said, and it's in verse 23. It's my third heading, who we ought to be. If... See, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. If is a big, little word here. If indeed you continue in the faith. There's two ways you can look at a verse like this. Some would suggest that you can lose your salvation, lose your reconciliation, lose your loss of alienation if you stop believing. But the total picture of the Bible is different than that. Rather, The proof that you've been reconciled to God is that you keep believing. Or to put that in the negative, if you stop believing, it's because you weren't ever truly reconciled to God in the first place. It's that your faith was not of the kind that saves. There was a shallow belief, or perhaps it was an emotional response to a a set of circumstances, or maybe it was merely intellectual assent. 
But Christian faith is different. It is by definition sole reliance on the facts of the good news. That's soul, S-O-U-L, not soul, S-O-L-E. Your entire soul is relying on the notion that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the king and Lord of all creation. And your entire soul is relying on the idea that he did what he said he did, dying to give his life in exchange for his would-be subjects. The fact that Paul can bring this up is a reminder that there are many types of faith that don't continue, which aren't lasting, that aren't really Christian faith. So we have this example in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Now, while he, that is Jesus, now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. It would seem in this case the people believed in Jesus in some sort of superficial way, perhaps based on the hype and emotions of his miracles. But Jesus didn't reciprocate. The Greek word for belief and entrust are, are identical. It's the same word. He didn't believe in them because he knew what was in them. He knew they were not for real. There is a type of superficial faith that is attracted maybe to the blessings of Jesus or to the good things that he offers, but it doesn't seek Jesus himself as our greatest and most lasting treasure. That's not Christian faith. The Colossians were facing a test of their faith. Another ideology had come along that threatened to steal their hearts. If their faith was genuine, they would survive the test. But if not, what would this non-genuine faith look like? You know, it's been popular in the last three or four years to see a number of prominent Christians make public declarations that they were leaving the faith. They either were reinterpreting Christianity or were walking away from it entirely. And sometimes the reinterpretation preceded walking away. They've come to be known as deconversion stories, and they follow an almost predictable pattern. Whether from the husband and wife musical duo Gungor, or influential women speaker Jen Hatmaker, or YouTube celebrities Rhett and Link of Good Mythical Morning, the stories are boringly similar, which makes them all the more sad in a way. Let me suggest there's nothing particularly courageous about giving up belief when you live in a world that generally makes those beliefs less tolerable day by day. You know what's courageous? What's courageous is standing for something, holding to something in the face of persistent reason to throw it away. It's courageous to stand firm on truth, even if it means your boss thinks you're crazy or, or your neighbor thinks you're intolerant or your family thinks you're naive. That's courage. But walking away from Christianity to adopt the vain and empty ideology of 21st century Western culture isn't courageous. It's easy. 
But faith isn't just hard because the culture is directly confrontational. It's also hard because, like spies sent behind enemy lines, the world's ideologies often sneak into our hearts and minds in what seem like innocuous ways. A lot of people accepted the idea that they need to wear a mask everywhere they went these last few weeks. Why? There's not a good reason for it. It doesn't make sense if you stop to carefully consider it, but we're culturally accustomed to the idea that masks are sanitary and protective. So, of course, we wear them. We want to be sanitary. We want to protect ourselves. So, it's easy to see in our culture that building wealth is just the thing we're reasonably supposed to do because 21st century Americans have known no world in which wealth or resources are scarce. We just accept that the American dream is to build wealth and accumulate goods, and, and suddenly, suddenly our love of money becomes greater than our love for Jesus. But we don't even push Jesus out. What do we do? We bring him along for the ride. We, we subtly shift the message of, and meaning of Christianity to make Jesus the blesser of our hoarding and our stinginess and our selfishness. So that our Christianity looks very little different than the secularism and the godlessness of the culture around us. Is that Christian faith? It's easy to let our politics to become the driver of our world. We've lived so long in a democracy, we don't know what it's like to have all of our decisions made for us by an emperor. And we begin to buy into the false notion that we can shape the world through our political action. And so we slowly forget that Jesus is king. And we place all of our hope on the next election, the next referendum, the next protest, the next strike. And believe me, we can convince ourselves that Jesus blesses our politics. It's easy to let our children become the driver of our world. Our culture in America demands that we put all of our self-worth into our children. You can be great if your child is great. You're a great mother if you have a perfectly ordered home. You're a great father if you put your child through the best schools. And quickly, your God becomes junior instead of Jesus. But you tell yourself that you're a family man or a godly mother like Jesus would want. Except that he wants your heart for him over your heart for your child. It's easy to lose sight of the Christian hope even while pretending to bring Jesus along for the ride. Like the Israelites in the wilderness crafting the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain collecting the Ten Commandments. They tried to bring Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, along for the ride. Look, Aaron said, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Now let's hold a feast to Yahweh. But that was not true faith. Instead, our faith should remain stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Stable, steadfast, not shifting. Potent words for our time, aren't they? 
Have you ever gone out to the ocean and it stood on the beach? and then wade it out into the water a little bit, not far, but just enough, perhaps up to your, your knees, and the waves are getting heavier, and you, and you just feel a little bit of undertow, that pulling as the water recedes back into the ocean, that, that it might just take you with it, and you have to brace your legs so that you remain stable and steadfast, not shifting as each subsequent wave hits. Stability and steadfastness are not passive traits. To the person on the outside, standing on, on the shore farther up or, or down the way, you look like a person standing still, doing nothing in particular. But in your bones, you feel the weight of the forces of nature pulling on your body, and it's all you can do to stand firm. It is desperately active, and it requires a determination to stay up. But those around you won't see it. And that is what the Christian is called to. It's a fight. And it's a fight that the world may not understand. They may not see it. They may not get it. They have no idea what you are experiencing. But you are bracing with every muscle in your soul to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul says, not shifting from what? The hope of the gospel. We're to keep our eyes on what lies ahead. That promise of what Jesus says we will be in this passage. In 1787, Samuel Stennett wrote about that gospel hope. Comparing it to the Israelites standing on the bank of the Jordan River, just about ready to cross into the land God had promised them. And he wrote, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. O'er all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. With such firm and fixed confidence, it's not likely that the perils of life or the calls of culture would have kept Samuel Stunnett from holding fast to the faith. <clears throat> The final words of this verse are a reminder to the Colossians to what gospel they need to stand firm in. Because many ideas masquerade as a form of good news, but it's the good news that they had previously heard, which is the same good news that's preached everywhere, which is the same good news that Paul himself preaches. The good news that sinners can be reconciled to God as a free gift from God on the sole basis of what Jesus did for sinners who turned to him in faith. That is the only gospel that gives hope that can be called Christian. Christian, because Jesus rescued you 
from what you were and has promised you what you will be, you must stand firm now. Though the world seems to be going crazy, though your life might turn upside down, though things might get much worse than this, although all the universe might conspire to steal your hope, do not let go of your faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you took us from our wretched and miry condition and have reconciled us to you by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are undeserving and unworthy of such a great and awesome gift that though we tried in all of our heart and being to squander the good things you've offered, making ourselves your enemies, yet you rescued us. Thank you. God, as our world enters a challenging season and we share in those challenges, Make us steadfast in our faith. May we rely on your spirit so that we might struggle with all of the might within our bones to stand firm against the waves and undertow of culture and disease and false gospels and false philosophies. May we hold our faith strongly to the end. May we be the people who don't have deconversion stories, but the stories of how I kept believing in Jesus, how I kept believing in the hope of the gospel. And may we share those stories widely and celebrate them with one another. And Father, we pray for those who have no access to you, who are estranged from you, who are foreigners and aliens to your kingdom because they remain enemies in their minds. That they would surrender to King Jesus today and so find the promises of the hope of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.